evidence and answers. Why are so many people mad at Christians lately? Why are followers of Jesus often lumped in with other religious fundamentalists as a dangerous threat to liberty in America? Greg Kokel suggests the heart of the problem is confusion about tolerance. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each year, Pat hosts an apologetics conference located in beautiful Hawaii. Today, we are listening to one of the teachings taken from the 2018 apologetics conference. Greg Kokel suggests that the heart of the problem is confusion about tolerance. In this insightful analysis, Greg outlines what happens to cause the definition of tolerance to go topsy-turvy. He exposes what he calls the myth of neutrality and the myth of tolerance and teaches a simple method to disarm the tolerance trick. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, on to part one of today's message entitled, Intolerance of the New Tolerance. Well, our final session. What a weekend. Do you feel like that guy in the Far Side cartoon, you know, who's in a math class and he's looking up at the board and all the equations are on the board and he says professor can i please be excused my brain is full just feel overwhelmed well a big part of my own contribution in the time that uh we spent here has been to help you to look with different eyes i mean i've tried to provide information and particular things but my own contribution to a large degree is to help you to to drop back and to see some patterns that are happening in the culture and then give you a better ability to navigate in those as an ambassador for Christ. So in this, our final session, I'd like to do the same thing. I have a question I want to ask to start out here. And the question is, why are so many people mad at Christians? I don't know if you notice this or not, but it may not necessarily be with you and your particular non-Christian friends who you've had relationships with, and you've interacted with. But generally speaking, especially if you go in a new environment, you go onto the university campus, you go on to the university campus and what you get is a lot of pushback on your ideas. They'll leave you alone as long as you don't act like you're a Christian or talk like you're a Christian, right? If you start being a Christian in the context of our culture, which entails certain behavior and certain uh, kinds of engagements with other people as we communicate the gospel, then we're asking for trouble, okay? And I think that the reason that we have had such difficulty in the public square, which has gotten increasingly ugly, is that even though there's conflict on both sides of the aisle, I think it is largely, though, coming from one side more than the other. And it is a fear that some have that Christians are dangerous, and I think the fear is largely unfounded but that fear breeds animosity because it's tied to a particular confusion. And I think that the confusion is on the idea of tolerance. And that's what I'd like to address in our final segment today. Let me give you three examples of this from my own experience. I was uh, asked to lecture and Calgary, Canada, actually did a debate there at the University of Calgary on the issue of moral relativism with Dr. John Baker. 
And I also had an assignment to speak at a smaller local college, community college or university called Mount Royal College. And I was there to speak on the issue of why Jesus is the only way of salvation, because people considered that notion to be wildly intolerant. And so we were able to arrange a facility, and it was a campus, not sponsored event, but a campus. It was an We went through all the right channels to get the room and pay for everything and, and, and everything. But the local church who sponsored it and the group that sponsored it wanted to put up posters around campus in order to promote the event. So it was a campus-sanctioned event. That was the word I was looking for. And here was the poster that they wanted to put up. There's me, or my younger son. Is it intolerant to say that Jesus is the only way? That's the title of my talk. And then it says, is choosing a religion merely a matter of preference like chocolate versus vanilla? Or is it something much more serious? Come here, Christian author and speaker, etc., etc. The details are there. Well, the university would not allow us to post these posters around the camp, campus and promote our event. Why not? They had two reasons. Here's the first reason. First, your title is divisive. You're troublemaking with a title like that. Why do you think we chose that title? Is it intolerant to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation? It's because that's what students on the campus were saying about the Christians. It's intolerant to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now, it strikes me, I don't know what you think about this, but if it's divisive to answer the charge, why isn't it divisive to make the charge? They weren't saying but there was a second reason they wouldn't allow us to put the poster up. And that second reason was that the poster had racial overtones. And I know you're looking really hard to try to find it. And some of you, oh, there it is, chocolate and vanilla. Oh my goodness. As far as I could tell, there are grocery stores in Calgary, Alberta, that served chocolate and vanilla ice cream, and I didn't see any lines of people campaigning against the racism and the choice of flavors in the grocery store. But nevertheless, these are the two reasons they gave us why we would not be able to promote our event with these posters on the campus. And as a result, the event was not very well attended. It especially was not well attended by Muslims. There are a lot of Muslims on that campus. They love going to these kind of things, but there are almost no Muslims in my audience. And somebody who is a Christian on campus came up and said, didn't you guys advertise this? Because if you had, there would be a lot of Muslims. Well, we did try, but we weren't allowed to because this particular poster was offensive. And by the way, the group that disqualified this attempt at free speech on the university campus was the Campus Human Rights Group, just so you know. All right. Next one is a, a newspaper article from the LA Times. I want you to look at this. It says, gay leaders say protesters are using hateful tactics. Now, of course, this is the kind of charge that comes up a lot when you stand against the other side they're going to complain that you're a hateful person. And when you zoom in and look at one of the photos, of course, there you see them. They're screaming and yelling and you can see they're angry. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, that's the gay leaders. Oh, I'm sorry. Where are the hateful protests? Oh, here they are. 
Five Russian old women in babushkas <laughs> sitting on a park bench. That's the hateful protesters. Now, it makes you wonder if the person who was writing the headlines for the LA Times didn't even notice this. The odd juxtaposition there, but this comes up a lot. That is, the people that are being characterized as the loving, tolerant, kind, open-minded, accepting, gracious people are the ones that are actually acting in a wild, mean, vicious, divisive fashion. I'm not saying that our side doesn't do that sometimes. I'm just talking about what seems to be characteristic in our culture now. Now, before we go to the next slide, I have to give you a warning. Because in the next slide, there is a naughty word, okay? But I'm putting the slide up for a reason, because it makes a point. And when I read what's on the slide, I will spell the naughty word, okay? And we, I know we have, like, young ears here, but young ears are not paying any attention right now. So that's perfect for me. I lost him on Kermit. So, but let me explain the setting before you see the poster. I was in Seattle area, and this is in Olympia, Washington, south of Seattle. Very liberal kind of community, left-leaning politically. I was speaking at a local junior college there on the problem of evil. And as my wife and I were walking around that community, we ha happened upon a bar named Jake's Bar. And I was so taken with the poster on the outside of the bar that explained what they were all about that I took a photo of it, which you're going to see in a moment. But if you look carefully at the reflection, you'll actually see me taking a photo of this poster of Jake's Bar. Here's what it says. Jake's is a hate-free queer bar. We welcome everybody, unless you are a homophobic, transphobic, racist, sexist, heterophobic, thief, drug dealer, violent, bigot, or an A. Oh my goodness, he's now watching. If none of these apply to you, welcome. Have a fabulous time. And then fine print, it says, the staff at Jake's cares about you. If you feel that someone here is compromising our safe, hate-free space, please don't hesitate to let one of us know. In other words, we'll grab that person and throw them out on the rear. What I want you to see about this poster is they're advertising their hate-free space, and it is hate-free for everyone that is just like they are. If you're not just like they are, all bets are off. This is the kind of thing that happens all the time. I've just grabbed three things from my own personal experience, but they happen to Christians all over the country, not just in this country, but in Canada as well. Now, why, what's going on here? People asked a number of years ago whether 9-11 that terrible attack that cost 2,977 lives on American soil that we just commemorated recently, whether that made more people go to church. And actually, if you're a pastor, you know that right after 9-11, the churches were full. Because when people get scared, they go someplace where they feel safe. But once the danger seems to abate, then they go back to their normal life. Except for one thing that did actually change and carried on through. And the thing that changed and carried on through was a, a way of viewing Christians because of a Muslim attack on the Twin Towers 
and the Pentagon and the deaths of those in the airplane, Flight 91, in the field in Pennsylvania. And while the smoke was still billowing from the Twin Towers, Thomas Friedman wrote a piece in the New York Times. Thomas Friedman is also one of the cognoscenti of this country. The title of his piece was The Real War. And in the piece, he discussed what the real war we're facing now is. It isn't a war about terrorism, he said. He said terrorism is just a means to an end. Rather, he said the real war is against those who he called religious totalitarians. So what is a religious totalitarian, according to Thomas Friedman? And the answer is anybody who thinks his religious view is correct. Now, did those men who flew those jets into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon in the field in Pennsylvania, were they people who believed their religious view was correct? Yes. But that would be a phrase that applies to probably most of the people in this room. And by the way, it would apply to Thomas Friedman, whatever his particular views happen to be, because everybody believes their views are correct. The problem is, is that Thomas Friedman did not make a distinction between Muslim fundamentalist and Christian fundamentalist, because a Christian fundamentalist would likely pray for you, where a Muslim fundamentalist could very likely try to kill you. And that's a difference that's worth noting. Notice I said Muslim fundamentalist, because there are a lot of Muslims who are not fundamentalists. They are liberal Muslims, and so they don't practice the fundamentals they don't follow their leader, and they don't believe the book, which is good in our case. Nevertheless, two-thirds or so of the Muslim population of the world are fundamentalists and hold the same views as those terrorists. So what Thomas Friedman did is he looked at some one religious group and what they did because they were convinced of their views and generalized to all religions, particularly to Christian religion. And therefore, since then, and I don't think it was just Thomas Friedman, but he kind of lit the match or maybe just added more fuel to the fire. The fear that people had that Christianity was dangerous. Specifically, Christians were dangerous. Now, isn't it odd, though, what has happened to Islam in this country? In this country, it was Muslim terrorists that created all those deaths on 9-11, but very soon afterwards, I mean within a year, Islam somehow attained most favored religious status in this country. That is, you couldn't say anything bad about Muslims. In fact, Muslim and terrorist were two words that would not even show up in the sentence together for eight years of one administration of the executive branch of this country. Islam attained most favored religion. It's protected. You can't speak against it. And Christians are the ones who are considered dangerous. And I've got all kinds of examples of this in print. And you can see it if you just pay attention. Rosie O'Donnell on The View. Radical Christianity is just as threatening as radical Islam in a country like America. Bill O'Reilly's uh, O'Reilly Factor had Bill Maher on. Bill Maher says the ones that make the headlines, the evangelical Christians, are usually the ones who are behind everything that represents intolerance and bigotry. I heard Hardball's Chris Matthews say the group most like the Taliban 
in the United States is the religious right. These are all quotations. How did that happen? Now, I have my own theory about how that happened, how it turned out that even though it was Muslim terrorists that killed all those people, that Christians are viewed now as the dangerous ones. And this has to do with an understanding of spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. There are schemes the devil has to blind people from something that's obvious and turn the truth completely upside down. This is an example of that. By the way, just for the record, Islam is a mortal enemy of Christianity and Judaism. Just saying. I don't think this is an accident that this is being overlooked. But I don't think people in the culture are thinking about it. I think they have just been wooed into something. It's a spiritual design that they are blinded to. But we should not be. Nevertheless, what I ask is, okay, people are deeply confused, right? What's going on here? And so for simplicity's sake, I want to mention two related concepts. I think people have been taken in by what I'm going to call the myth of neutrality and the myth of tolerance. The myth of neutrality and the myth of tolerance. So I'm going to make two points then for, actually I'm going to make three points for the rest of this talk. And again, these are all points to help you to get an overview of something that's going on, to be aware of a dynamic. Because we can see things that people who are blinded cannot see. And I'm not speaking disparagingly or condescendingly of those who are blinded. They are blinded by an enemy who has full capability of doing that. I mentioned this yesterday, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the devil has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. 1 John chapter 5, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and on and on. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Revelations 12, they all make a mention of the same thing. There is a battle going on here, and people's eyes are being blinded, and we ought not be blinded to what's going on. We can see. And so I'm going to make three points here related to this broad issue of tolerance and neutrality that hopefully will help you to navigate more effectively with the people that you talk to about spiritual things. And the three points that I'm going to make now are first, no one is neutral. No one is neutral. So if tolerance requires neutrality, then there can't be any tolerance because nobody is neutral. Even the so-called tolerant ones that we saw depicted in the illustrations I gave you there in those PowerPoint slides, they weren't neutral. It was pretty obvious, okay? First, no one's neutral. Secondly, there is nothing unusual about thinking that your religious view is correct. I was uh, taking a flight from Chicago to San Francisco. Very, I mean, not, not Chicago, but Los Angeles to San Francisco. Short flight, 25 minutes. Guy sitting next to me had had a few drinks before he got on the plane, so he's quite talkative. Got right away into a spiritual conversation. He said, well, you're one of those people that probably thinks that 90% of the people in the world are wrong about their religion. And then the word bigotry kind of snuck into the conversation there. And so I communicated to him, well, yeah, that's my view, but it's not bigotry, it's simple math. And I'll explain that to you in just a moment. That's the second point. And the third one is, the current politically correct version of tolerance is actually intolerance in disguise. Everything is topsy-turvy. It's the intolerance of tolerance. So there's my outline of what comes next. So first, 
I want to talk about the myth of neutrality. I'm going to read something here that Faye Waddleton wrote. Faye Waddleton is the former president of Planned Parenthood. Uh, you probably imagine that I don't agree with her view here, and that's right, but I'm not reading this to ridicule her. I don't believe in doing that. I think if you want to critique a view, you find a really good example of the view, well argued from the other side, and then show what's wrong with it, and that's why I chose this piece. Because as I read what Faye Waddleton wrote, you are going to be thinking, gee, I don't think I'm supposed to agree with her, but I don't know how I can disagree without sounding foolish. It's that good. It's really good writing. But there's a flaw in it, and maybe you'll catch it. So let me read it to you. It's on morality. Quote, like most parents, I think that a sense of moral responsibility is one of the greatest gifts I can give my child. But teaching morality does not mean imposing my moral values on others. It means sharing wisdom and giving reasons for believing as I do, and then trusting others to think and judge for themselves. My parents' morals were deeply rooted in religious conviction, but tempered by tolerance. There's our word. The essence of which is respect for other people's views. They taught me that reasonable people may differ on moral issues, and that fundamental respect for others is morality of the highest order. I had devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. I hope the tolerance and respect that I show her as a parent is reinforced by the work she sees me doing every day, fighting for the right of all individuals to make their own moral decisions about childbearing. Of course, she's talking about abortion on demand there. 75 years ago, Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood to liberate individuals from the mighty engines of repression. As she wrote, the men and women of, of America are demanding that they be allowed to mold their lives, not at the arbitrary command of church or state, but as their conscience and their judgment may dictate. And then she closes. She said, I'm proud to continue that struggle to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs. When others try to inflict their views on me, my daughter, or anyone else, that's not morality. That's tyranny. It's unfair. And it's un-American. Close quote. Wow. Well, that's good writing. It sounds so persuasive. Sounds so sensible. Sounds so reasonable. It sounds so tolerant, right? But there is a fundamental flaw. Some of you are already picking up on it. I see an expression on your face. I want you to notice first, though, her emphasis on neutrality. That we should trust others to think and judge for themselves, right? that Americans are demanding that they be allowed to mold their lives as their conscience and judgment may dictate. So she is promoting a moral neutrality and a kind of non-interference. In other words, we should be neutral and tolerant towards others, and if we're not neutral, then we're not tolerant. Is that a fair way of characterizing it so far? All right. So what's the flaw? <laughs> this is easy. Faye Waddleton is not neutral. She says she wants to continue this, this struggle to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs, but then has this to say of those whose beliefs on morality are different from hers. They, she says they are unfair, they are un-American, and they are tyrannous. Notice those are moral judgments. Now, by the way, I'm not, I'm not arguing whether she's right or wrong here. This is not about abortion or about choice. You may agree with her. You may have your reasons. It's not my point. My question is... Here is a person that is championing tolerance based on neutrality, but when you look closely, it is obvious she is not neutral, 
And if she is not neutral, it ought to be obvious that she's also therefore not what? <coughs> not tolerant. Not by that definition of tolerance, is my point. In fact, Faye Waddleton will force her own moral views on you. Really? How do you know that? Because she said so. I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. What legacy? Her point of view. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps at a conference, please give him a call. Locally in Hawaii, that's 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism including articles, additional audio for you to listen to or download, as well as Pat's books. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Oh,